Coming up next, Upstate's HealthLink on air. On this week's show, how stereotactic radiation offers a shorter treatment option for some cancer patients. Radiation doses that were, were delivered were so high that they were able to kill all of the the cancer cells in its path, thus being coined radiosurgical. Plus, treatment options for people with eating disorders. Have the child um, go to the primary care physician, have, them have a physical, tell the doctor that they think that there might be some eating disorder going on. And tales of art, conservation, and medical history. I think uh, my training as curator is, is really in the preservation aspect of things, preventative, trying to ensure that the climate we hang these paintings in is as consistent as possible. We'll get a selection from our healing muse, and that's all coming up right after the news. This is Upstate Medical University's HealthLink on Air, your weekly dose of information about health and medical issues affecting Central New Yorkers from the region's only academic medical center. I'm your host, Linda Cohen. On this week's show, we'll get some new treatment options for eating disorders, plus how an art conservator plays a role in preserving medical history. But first, some of the newest approaches to radio surgery. Radiation therapy remains a mainstay of cancer treatment, along with surgery and chemotherapy. Radiation treatments use high-energy radiation to shrink tumors and to kill cancer cells. Well, here to tell us more about some of the newer technological advances in this type of treatment and what they have to offer in the fight against cancer is Dr. Michael Mix. He's Assistant Professor of Radiation Oncology at the Upstate Cancer Center and at Upstate Medical University. Welcome, Dr. Mix. Thanks so much for coming. In. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. So radiation therapy still plays a key role in cancer treatment. Explain what exactly is radiation therapy. So radiation therapy uh, in its most basic form is utilization of high energy x-rays in most cases uh, targeted at whatever we're aiming to treat. So in most instance, instances that's uh, a malignant condition or something cancerous um, but there are some b benign or non-cancerous indications for radiation therapy as well. So it's basically coming from the outside into the body. I mean, it's... Exactly right. So, so we use a term uh, external beam radiation therapy, which means that uh, the patient is on a, a treatment table, much like a CT scan table or an MRI table, and a beam of radiation is focused very accurately uh, at the target. Now, have there been technological advances that have enabled um, your profession to direct this external beam in a better, more efficient, effective way? Absolutely. So over the past uh, many years, uh, we've transitioned as a field from using two-dimensional x-rays to three-dimensional techniques using CT scans to plan radiation therapy and the development of imaging on our treatment treatment machines such as x-rays and cat scans allows us to 
better focus our radiation treatments and to better visualize surrounding structures to make the treatments not only more effective but safer. So they're not harming potentially structures around the, the affected structure. Or at least or we've reduced the ability or reduced the likelihood of that happening. Yes. So what is stereotactic radiation? Because that's a term as I was preparing to talk to you today that came up. What exactly is that? Sure. So stereotactic radiation is a, is a broad term used to describe uh, a newer advance in the field of radiation oncology over the past 10 to 15 years especially, um, meaning higher dose per treatment radiation that's more focused, lined up more accurately. And the term stereotactic really means using a precise three-dimensional mapping or coordinate system uh, to guide the treatment, ultimately providing a more accurate and more reliable treatment. So even more so than before, you now have the mechanisms through which to target very accurately, as you said, in three dimensions where this external beam has to hit. Exactly right. And so our ability to better localize the target to recreate the positioning of the patient to make sure the beam that we deliver can target what we're after accurately and to be able to do this in a smaller number of treatments overall relative to conventional treatment has allowed us to give um, in some instances more effective uh, and higher dose radiation. But there is, there's also a, a term that I've heard bandied about stereotactic radiosurgery. What is that and how does it differ from what you've just described? Right, so in general, stereotactic radiation implies the use of the, the principles and the technologies that I've just alluded to. We tend to divide the, that into two general categories, that being stereotactic radiosurgery, which tends to apply to these technologies being applied to conditions in the brain or stereotactic body radiation therapy, meaning stereotactic radiation or radiosurgery um, to other areas of, of the body that are outside the brain. But in fact, we're not talking about actual surgery. We're not talking about cutting, but obviously something about these external rays, which are so effective, are basically producing surgery-like outcomes? Is that, that the idea? Yeah, that's exactly right. So the, the term came initially from the work in the brain that was done together with neurosurgeons and radiation oncologists many, many years ago. Um, and the idea was that the radiation doses that were, were delivered were so high that they were able to kill all of the, the cancer cells in its path, thus being coined radiosurgical having a similar outcome as if the, the tumor were actually removed surgically, although this is a, a non-invasive technique, correct? So basically, this is a breakthrough, this whole concept of being able to go into the brain without actually going into the brain must really have made a big difference, even in terms of outcomes and in terms of the potential damage to other structures, that kind of thing. That's correct. So this is something that's been investigated for, for many, many years, but the as I mentioned earlier, the technological advances that we've seen over the last uh, 5 to 15 years probably um, have really leapt the field forward. So what types of tumors or cancers, you've mentioned the brain, you've mentioned the body at large, what types of tumors or cancers are specifically best treated by this kind of methodology as opposed to perhaps chemotherapy or, you know, 
surgery proper? Sure. So as I mentioned, uh, small tumors in the brain that are amenable to this sort of treatment have been treated for a long time. Um, there are also certain lung tumors, lung cancers in particular, that have become uh, widely studied and are becoming much more commonly treated with stereotactic body radiation therapy um, as opposed to a more conventional uh, surgical approach and or a conventional radiation approach, which would be uh, several treatments per week over a number of weeks. How would you determine a patient would be more would benefit more greatly from this type of approach than either conventional radiotherapy and or surgical intervention? So this is an evolving question, and it's an an area of active research, not only uh, here in central New York but across the country. We're always looking for ways to improve cancer outcomes. And in certain situations, we've found that this sort of stereotactic radiation that I've described is a good alternative to surgery, perhaps for patients who aren't healthy enough to undergo surgery. Um, This provides uh, a potentially curative option, uh, whereas many years ago, patients didn't have one. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on air. I'm Linda Cohen, along with radiation oncologist Dr. Michael Mix. We're talking about the newest radiation therapy in the treatment of cancer. So help us understand a little bit more about this whole kind of concept of the linear accelerator, the way that these beams are created. I mean, what exactly, what has changed about them? How is it different than prior x-ray technology? And and what does this linear, linear accelerator do, actually? So there was a time when the main machine that was utilized for radiation therapy actually contained a radioactive source that would be focused towards the the target or the tumor in most cases. And that turned out to be a a good idea at the time, but wasn't able to be as accurate as we would have liked. So over time, there's been a development uh, of many technological advances, um, which allows modern-day treatment machines, most of which are what you call linear accelerators that actually don't contain radioactive materials themselves, but are able to use high electrical fields um, after a number of steps to, co- to generate a high-energy X-ray beam that's able to be focused in a very, very sharp um, manner to give us very sharp edges, which is what allows us to, to target the tumor relatively accurately while sparing the surrounding normal tissues uh, maximally. Does the fact that there isn't radioactive, radioactive um, methodology within sure. there or, or material, does that affect the person who's also exposed doing the doing the therapy? I mean, is it safer for the, the clinician who's involved in, in delivering the treatment? Yeah, so that's a good insight. So there was a time when these machines uh, did pose a, a slightly higher risk to our therapists who are, you know, the people on the ground delivering these treatments. Uh, day after day. Day after day. <laughs> um, uh, you know, but these, you know, the more recent technologies uh, make that risk uh, almost negligible. So overall, what would you say, how is, in other words, first of all, what are the benefits to the patient over conventional or prior therapy? And how is it basically an improvement over what has been used? I mean, are the outcomes better? 
less damage to surrounding tissue. Help us understand that. Yeah, so so again, in certain instances where this uh, type of treatment is indicated, and it's important to remember that conventional radiation therapy, which is, as I said, multiple treatments per week over a number of weeks, is still an important tool that we have, and in many situations is the right thing for the patient. However, in certain situations uh, where we feel uh, stereotactic radiation is useful, um, there are a number of benefits. As I said, first of all, it does allow us to deliver a higher uh, dose, which is oftentimes linked with more tumor kill, uh, more cancer uh, kill with the radiation. And in, and in addition, it's oftentimes delivered in many fewer treatments. So usually we are not um, calling it stereotactic radiation if we're delivering it in, in greater than five treatments. And for a patient to come and have uh, three to five treatments as opposed to uh, several weeks is obviously a, a big advantage for the patient in terms of convenience. Does it also um, improve the kind of the outcome in the sense that you're kind of getting to the cancer more rapidly, perhaps excising it? I mean, not really cutting it out, but basically killing it, killing a tumor, you know, in a more rapid fashion. Does that limit the number of side effects or the potential spread, metastases, or other issues that would occur? So in the situation that I described earlier, where typically surgery would have been the mainstay for patients with, let's say, an early-stage lung cancer, um, where in the past when patients weren't able to undergo surgery for health reasons or for other considerations, conventional radiation therapy was the best option that they had, potentially with chemotherapy as well. More recently, as I mentioned over the past many years, as we've shifted to these high-dose shorter treatments, we've been able to greatly improve uh, the, the cancer outcomes in these patients, meaning that they're tended to, they tend to survive longer, tend to develop fewer metastases, et cetera. So it, it does affect outcomes. Absolutely. Are the treatments shorter in time duration as well? I mean, you said there are fewer over a shorter period of time in terms of week, mm -hmm. a week, but are they also quicker? Each individual treatment, meaning per day, tends to be a little bit longer just because we have to deliver a higher dose and because of all of the checks and double checks we have to make sure that everything's accurately aligned with the patient prior to delivering the treatment. One of the things that I mentioned is our ability to acquire CAT scans on our treatment machines to, to make sure um, in an absolute fashion that the patient and the patient's tumor are both properly aligned underneath the radiation beam but before turning it, turning it on. We also have the ability to actually track the tumor's motion to account for patient's breathing. So for example, wow, if great. a lung tumor moves with, with breathing, we're able to watch that and account for that. And that's some of the technology that we have available to us to make sure that you know these treatments are as safe as possible. So along those lines, how are you protecting the other structures? I mean, I'm kind of getting the feeling that being able to target things in real time, even even under motion, mm -hmm. that's that's very profound, it seems to me, in terms of protecting the rest of the structures around. But are there other things that you utilize? Yeah, the, the other main component is that we typically would use focused beams coming from many different angles to target the same tumor. So you could imagine if I were to just use one radiation beam of a certain intensity targeting the tumor, that everything in that beam's path would receive the same radiation dose. But if you can picture a number of radiation beams coming at a tumor from many different angles, only the area where all those beams cross 
would receive the high radiation dose. And again, our ability to image the patient, image the tumor, follow its motion, allows us to be able to do that and not be able and be confident that we're not missing the tumor while maximally sparing normal structures. Are there any non-cancer applications for this type of therapy? We've been talking largely about tumor and we've been talking largely about cancer, but do you use this kind of therapy elsewhere and we only have a little bit of time? Yeah, so so there are, and in, you know, briefly, the, the non-cancerous indications for this type of technology are mostly in the brain. So there's some benign conditions in the brain um, you know, that we will use our gamma knife uh, here at Upstate uh, to treat. And the gamma knife, again, is what you call radio surgery. Radio surgery, absolutely. In the brain. That's fabulous. Thank you for giving us this very, very broad overview. And it's very hopeful, I mean, for people, I guess, who, as we said, who might not be able to undergo something like a surgical intervention. And as you said, in many cases, this is the, this is the, uh, the better treatment. Indeed it is. Thanks for the opportunity to speak about it. So my guest has been Dr. Michael Mix, and he is an assistant professor of radiation oncology at the Upstate Cancer Center and at Upstate Medical University. I'm Linda Cohen. You're listening to Upstate's HealthLink On Air. up next, some new approaches to eating disorders. You're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on Air. Upstate's Health Link on Air. Linda Cohen along with you. More people are being diagnosed with eating disorders every year, and the problem is showing up much earlier with younger and younger children manifesting this disease, prompting much discussion and concern about what can be done to treat this problem. Here with more on all of this is Kathleen Dieters-Hayes. She's a clinical assistant professor in the Department of Psychiatry at Upstate Medical University. She is also a licensed clinical social worker and therapist who directs Upstate's Eating Disorders Program. Welcome, Kathleen. Thanks so much for coming in. My pleasure. So I guess it's showing up earlier, and it's not just limited to girls and young women. Right. People of all ages have eating disorders, and that includes boys and males at all ages. Um, we're, we used to just treat women and focus mostly on adolescent girls, and now the field has become much more aware that people of um, both genders as well as all ages are uh, coming up with symptoms of eating disorders. Let's start by trying to define what is an eating disorder, and then I want to okay. get a sense of your feeling as to what may be contributing to some of this. Okay. But what exactly is an eating disorder in your in your parlance? Well, there are three different kinds of eating disorders, if we get sort of <clears throat> clear and simplistic. Um, anorexia nervosa, which can occur at all ages, bulimia nervosa, which also can occur at all ages, and what's now um, being defined as binge eating disorder. We used to call it compulsive overeating, but um, we now have a diagnosis of binge eating disorder, which of course is also both genders and all ages. But isn't it the fact that, that somehow a person 
with an eating disorder may have started out maybe just eating smaller amounts of food, but at some point the urge to eat less spirals out of control or the or the reverse the urge to eat more kind of spirals out of control it's a kind of a loss of control of your it, eating yes, capability yes it, it can be absolutely and going in as you said in both directions um the thing that we we've kind of come to realize is that people with an anxiety disorder even if it's a low level anxiety disorder if they go on a diet that can really then make them move into an eating disorder. It doesn't happen to everybody, but especially with anorexia, if you already have a little bit of obsessiveness or anxiety, getting going on a diet can really spiral into obsessing about food, what's in it, how much you're eating, calories, all those kinds of things. So let me just stop you for a moment. Let's just define those three that you mentioned. Okay. So anorexia nervosa is what? It is basically defined as being at 85% or lower of your normal body weight. For women or young girls, they lose their menstrual cycle. Um, it's, it's a distortion. If they look in the mirror, they see themselves as fat when they're really very underweight and some people look quite skeletal. So it, it causes them to eat less and less yes. and less or keep that mi very minimal amount of food intake yes. so they really lose massive amounts of weight. Absolutely, yes. And they don't see it yes, as accurately. Totally, yes, absolutely. Okay, so bulimia, how is that different? Bulimia is usually occurs with people who are at a normal weight. They feel kind of like they're, uh, they want to lose weight but they can't seem to, thank heaven, sustain um, more of an anorexic position. So they tend to binge on food and then they do something um, that we refer to as purging, which can be vomiting the food. It can also mean um, taking too many laxatives. Some people take diuretics. Some people purge through exercising. All of those things are considered a purge. But there has to be that kind of binging on food and then somehow getting rid of it. That so that constitutes it. bulimia. Mm -hmm. Now, binge eating disorder, yes. and how is that different? Binge eating disorder is doesn't have any of the purging. Um, you do not have, weirdly, you do not have to be obese to have binge eating disorder. Many, many people do, are obese, and do um, have obesity who have binge eating disorder. But it's really this um, intake of calories that has a sense of being out of control and that this happens on a pretty regular basis. The way that I think about it is that people are using food to try to somehow comfort themselves mm -hmm. or manage themselves emotionally when they're in some kind of an emotional state that they can't handle or are uncomfortable with. So it's it's kind of self-soothing, yes. but they take in large amounts of food. Yes. And you're saying often that does lead to obesity because yes. they're not purging it, yes. as you mentioned. Yes. So after a while, if you're continuing to to develop that pattern you will gain weight you yes. will gain weight yes okay we don't you mentioned the fact that it often co-occurs with anxiety mm -hmm. depression mm -hmm. some kind of other issue yes even perhaps substance abuse absolutely problems. yes but do we know what causes it well no the answer really simply is no. There are a lot of different ideas about this. Uh, there's a lot of studying going on right now about genetics. If, if there's another family member who's had an eating disorder of any kind, there is a lot of evidence that there's a genetic predisposition for obesity itself. Um, and there is somewhat of a link to um, with anorexia with other family members who have had that. Um, it can be family dynamics. It can be 
as I said, a genetic piece. It can, um, it can be a sense of uh, not really f- figuring out as you're growing up who you are. But what strikes me is if it is growing, its yes. prevalence is growing, and yes. it's cutting across mm-hmm. uh, gender, mm-hmm. for one, mm-hmm. it's, it seems like it's important to take a look at the cultural you know, messages mm-hmm. that are being, um, that, that we're living within. Right. The culture with, within which we live right. m- must be playing some role here. I think it is. I, t- I try not to get too reductionistic about it because I think it's really easy to say, oh, it's the media. Or like, for example, in the year 2000, um, the island of Fiji got television for the first time and they had more of an explosion of eating disorders at that point. Now, I think it's too reductionistic to say, oh, it's the TV, you know, it's the media. Too simplistic. Yes, it is. But it has a role. And the messages that people get through magazines, through ads, through um, all kinds of uh, messages that they're getting externally make people who have a very low self-esteem question, am I okay? Do I look good? And the truth be told that even if you don't develop a full eating disorder, we know that these kinds of pressures exist across the board. Absolutely. So that the culture really... We, we've said this for a long time, especially when it comes to women, but now it's also spilling over into yes. men. I think that, you know, mm-hmm. it, I feel personally that it needs to be addressed on some level. Yes, absolutely. So what are some of the signs and symptoms that somebody would recognize? Mm-hmm. So some of the signs and symptoms are that somebody that you're with may um, <clears throat> kind of order food but then not eat much of it or play with it on their plate or they will skip lunch. They'll if they take their lunch, they'll uh, throw it away. Or they'll come home if they're a child. They come home not having eaten it. They'll get a little more secretive about food. A lot of people who have binge eating disorder as well as bulimia eat in secret. And parents will sometimes say they found all these wrappers um, in the garbage of all this candy that was consumed perhaps at night when everybody else is asleep. If they go to the bathroom right after the meal is over on a regular basis, they could be throwing up immediately after that. Um, And that happens in restaurants as well as at home. Um, I think if, if a person, children as well as adults, start to look at everything they eat and look at the ingredients and the calories and are sort of starting to become really obsessive about, oh, I can only eat this, I can't eat that, or they're talking about fat all the time, those are some signs that they could be moving into. And what are some of the symptoms that we'd actually see manif- that are mm-hmm. manifestations? I mean, do you you obviously see in, in anorexia yes. a, a significant weight loss? Absolutely, yes. But are you also are there other things that you're seeing? In, I mean, potentially. I mean, obviously, I, I read somewhere you can have, as you said, problems with amenorrhea mm-hmm. with women. Yes, thinning of bones, mm-hmm. those kinds of things. Right, the thinning of bones would not be something you could see obviously, obviously but you'd have to have a bone density scan but I do have that done with patients who present because they could end up at a very young age with osteoporosis so it's a big problem um, with anorexia of course it's you know people look fairly skeletal looking they're um, malnourished they sometimes have hair loss and that'll be something that will send somebody in for treatment because they don't want to look that like they don't have any hair um, with bulimia, it's a lot more um, difficult to 
identify it. I try to train primary care physicians to when people, young people especially, come in and they're presenting with um, um, having problems with um, their esophagus or um, heartburn or something like that. They're fairly young. I mean, you can have heartburn at a young age, but drinking alcohol a lot and vomiting will cause a lot of heartburn. And if the primary care doesn't ask about that, they may miss the, the diagnosis. Um, people with bulimia also tend to have uh, not, not so many relationships. They're, they isolate a lot. Uh, they have a relationship with this eating disorder that becomes something that sort of stabilizes them. And because they have to be secretive about it, they don't always want to go out with friends and eat and hang out with them because they're afraid that they will have to leave and go throw up. So that's one of the things that I kind of look for with bulimia. Binge eating disorder, it's actually pretty easy to see it. Some people hide it, but weight gain as well as just kind of always at home wanting to be eating um, or making food the main priority of their life, um, you can kind of see that there, there's something going on with them. Now, I know that you mostly work with adults in terms of your therapy and yes. the program that you're working on, but what would you suggest? What would you suggest to a parent, for example? Mm -hmm. What would they do if they suspected that a child of theirs mm -hmm. was manifesting an eating disorder? What's your recommendation? This happens all the time. I get calls from parents. And what I tell them, the first thing they should do is have the child uh, go to the primary care physician, have, them have a physical, tell the doctor that they think that there might be some eating disorder going on. And they need to have some lab work done because blood work shows almost everything. It'll show if they're malnourished. It'll show esophageal problems or, um, I'm sorry, heart problems. And so that's the very first thing. And then after they do that, they should get an evaluation with a therapist. And I'll give them referrals uh, to someone who works with younger kids. If it's somebody who's 18, I will see them. And then I tell them, I'll do an evaluation. I'll let you know if you can be managed on an outpatient basis or not. Basically, how bad is it? And then if I can, I'll see you. Um, if I can't, I'll help you to facilitate going to a higher level of care so that you can interrupt this as soon as possible, and then they can be discharged out of that program back to me. So let's, let's talk about the different treatment options. Okay. So when you say, I'll see them, yes. what exactly are you engaged in? Just tell us about yes. it. It's weekly, for me, it's weekly therapy. Sessions are 50 minutes. I also um, require the patient to be seen all the time that they're seeing me, to be seeing a primary care physician, to be ma managing all of their medical issues that could come up. And if I think it's appropriate, which it is often throughout the treatment, I'll send them also to see a resident, um, I'm sorry, a nutritionist, who can then help them kind of figure out what is normal eating, how do I manage my eating, that kind of thing. Lisa Thomas is a registered dietitian in town. She's really good, and I use her quite a bit for that. So I see people weekly. I do also do a group twice a year for compulsive overeaters, binge eaters, and that is only for women. Um, I can talk more about that, but it is a really... I found it to be a really successful program, and women can really open up with each other and talk about what's going on with them. So let's talk about success. Yes. I mean, do certain types of therapeutic approaches seem more uh, powerful? I don't want to run out of time. Mm -hmm. Sure. 
50% of people respond to CBT, which is com- um, cognitive, cognitive behavioral yes. therapy. Yes. Cognitive and, behavioral therapy. And that is basically a whole form of therapy. Yes, it is. And what I do, though, is I do more what's called psychodynamic therapy. And what that is, is it's not just symptom relief. It's getting at the underlying issues, helping people to figure out what is going on with them that has made them use these symptoms to cope with life. So such as being having a history of being sexually abused, for example, they may have that history and they're using bulimia to manage it, the memories and the feelings. A, that's a very specific um, uh, way of thinking about it, right. yes, but it doesn't have to be with all patients. How about medications? Do medications ever help and are they useful? They, yes, they do. Uh, some people, um, Prozac is actually a medication that has um, been approved for showing that sometimes people lose the urge to purge. Um, That's the only medication that's been approved. However, if you have depression, you really need to be on a medication. Does insurance help or hurt at this point? It helps to a point, but almost all treatment is driven by insurance. So whatever kind of insurance you have, that's what you have to work with. Some places uh, do not cover any kind of residential program, which is a higher level of care, which I believe is the best Form At of least treatment. initially, yes. to get people started. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so basically, availability of programs in this area. You've mentioned mm-hmm. yours. Yep. Are there others? And yep. it, I mean, are we kind of in a in a surfeit, or are we in a deficit? Well, there's definitely a deficit in the whole state of New York. Um, Center of Syracuse is one. Soulstone is one in Elmira. They also have an extension branch in Liverpool. I'm going to have to stop you there. Okay. I want to thank you so much for coming in. My, My guest pleasure. has been Kathleen Dieters-Hayes. She is a clinical assistant professor in the Department of Psychiatry at Upstate Medical University and a licensed clinical social worker and therapist. She's also directing the Upstate's Eating Disorders Program. I'm Linda Cohen. You're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on air. Next up, how an art conservator plays a role in preserving medical history. You're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on air. Upstate's HealthLink on air. Linda Cohen here with you. The history of an institution is a crucial part of its legacy and its culture. And the people who built the institution and created that history stand as its foundation. Their portraits also stand as an ongoing reminder of their contributions and of their dedication. And the maintenance of these portraits is a measure of how the institution values them. Here to tell us more about all of this is Susan Blakeney, an art conservator and restorer with Westlake Conservatives of Skinny Atlas, New York, and Kara Howe. She is the curator for historic collections at Upstate Medical University. Welcome to you both. Thanks so much for coming in. Good Thanks morning. For having us. So let me start with you, Kara. You just engaged in some kind of an undertaking looking at the portraits within the Upstate collection. Why do this? So what we did was actually a preservation survey. 
So we decided to take a look at the entire collection and try and get a read on where each piece stands in terms of its physical condition. And really it was necessary because it hadn't been done before. So there hadn't been a curator for a number of years and the portrait collection before that wasn't really the responsibility of any one person here. So when I came about two and a half years ago, I decided that I could take control and, and try and care for these pieces. And part of that was getting a read on how they're doing and, and what we need to do to take care of them better and if any of them were going to need more in-depth treatments. How many works are we talking about? How many portraits or how many works of art are we talking about? When we conducted the survey, there were 55 portraits in the collection. One of them was brand new and hadn't yet been hung on the wall, so not a lot to deal with with that one. In the meantime, another portrait has been painted and commissioned and turned over to the university. So right now the collection stands at 56. So, Susan, you were then involved or gotten involved in this survey. But there's there's some this is a preservation survey, so I imagine it's kind of kind of taking the uh, toll or take making a checklist of what needs to be done. Is that exactly what took place? It was sort of what it took place, but it's definitely much more than a checklist. Uh, collection management of large collection has become a science uh, and a profession in the last twenty to thirty years. And we've learned a lot so that people don't just say, well, let's treat this painting because I love cows and that's my favorite piece or because it's being borrowed or whatever. It's really important for everybody to develop a health report which is like having an annual physical of going to a doctor so that what we created is a benchmark of condition that we're going to use for the next 10 years to help maintain many paintings the wisest way possible. So you're saying within a collection you wouldn't want to single out one to, is your favorite to take care of. You really want to treat them all equally, in a and, sense. Well, we really want to know the condition of everything before we, before we develop a plan for 10 years at a time because we have limited budgets and we need to tackle the most important pieces first. They might be the most historically important. They might be number one priority in great danger. That might be a way of selectively choosing how to maintain your collection. But let me back up a little bit. Why is that the case? I guess my question is for the listeners, what happens to a painting? Well, the minute it's painted, it starts to deteriorate, literally. Dust in the room starts to fall on it. I always tell people, imagine a 30-year-old painting, and you look at it, you go, well, it's only 30 years old. It doesn't need cleaning. But if that was the window in your house and you hadn't cleaned it in 30 years it would be bloomy and foggy, and that's the same thing that happens to paintings. How about, how about uh, a destruction or a uh, deterioration of the pigment, the paint itself, that kind of thing, the color, those kinds there's of things, light, the, effect of light on it, those kinds of there's, issues? There's a, a whole uh, group of items that can damage a painting, and it's the environment, it's the heat, the humidity, the light, the tension, if it's a stretched canvas, uh, vandalism. So basically, There's a lot of things that happen. So basically, in a way, a painting, you're almost making an analogy between a living organism and a painting. The minute the painting is born, it starts to age. It does. And it just like a person needs some health interventions at various times, a painting does as well. And, and sometimes a painting ages because the technique that the artist used is a little faulty. And so we often run into that as well. Technique or also materials? Both. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I think uh, 
my training as curator is, is really in the preservation aspect of things, preventative, trying to ensure that the climate we hang these paintings in is as consistent as possible. There's not big fluctuations in temperature, temperature and light, mm -hmm. trying to avoid obvious uh, damage to the painting from blows, drops, what have you, ensuring that a coffee reception isn't held right in front of one of the paintings and an urn of coffee isn't spilled onto the surface. So those types of things, making sure that it's hung properly on the wall, framed correctly, uh, surface cleaned regularly. Those are the things I'm trained to do. And those are intended to avoid needing Susan's services overly often. But eventually, every painting will need that type of treatment. So help us understand, though, the difference between, we're talking preservation. Kara mentioned that her job is more of a preservationist. What's the distinction between a preservationist or preserving a painting and restoring a painting? Well, the main difference is preservation is passive and it's something that doesn't require a treatment. Conservation- To the painting yeah, itself. Yeah, to the painting itself. So in other words, you're, you're dealing with the environment more and how it's being cared for. One of the things we did during the survey was we unframed and reframed everything with what we call preservation techniques. We now know how to preserve a painting best. We put something called a backing board on the back of every stretcher, every canvas, that minimizes the short-term environmental fluctuations. We know that the environment going up and down causes the cracks in paintings. So the more we can minimize or have what we call a flatline environment, the less cracks that will be developed. 17th century paintings are a roadmap of fine, fine cracking. And you think of, well, why would we do this now? Well, paintings can, can last for many, many years. I mean, we work on 13th century, 14th century paintings, 17th century paintings. This is a young, young collection. And with the new knowledge we have, you can begin to maintain it correctly, so you might not even need my services down the road. So I, let me just ask you, first of all, if you're just joining us, you're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on air. I'm Linda Cohen along with art restorer and conservator Susan Blakeney and art curator Kara um, Howe. We're talking about restoration of Upstate's current portrait collection, but, um, or if not restoration, basically pre preservation, but when, when we talk about restoration, what exactly do you do? I mean, just give us a well, very quick thumbnail imagine, of what you might do if a painting you've is Imagine you've owned a painting for the last 50 years. You've decided that it looks kind of bloomy or it's foggy looking. You looked at the surface and you see that there's a piece of paint lifting, and, it, and maybe you'll see an actual loss, a little tiny hole. Possibly one day when the sun comes in and hits it, you'll notice that the texture is very odd as Irregular. well. Mm -hmm. Irregular. So what a conservator does is we examine something, we have to document and test it to find out what is it made of, what is it sensitive to, what materials could we use to treat it to design a treatment plan. And we have to document with, uh, with writing and photography. Photography is extremely important now in conservation. It creates a benchmark and it allows us to see things that normally we would not see. So when we are treating a painting, there are standard formats. We take a photograph front and back before we ever even try to unframe it. Then we unframe it and take another photograph to show the tacking margins, which is the fold, which probably are the first things to deteriorate. We take a raking light photo, which is shining a light at an angle across the surface. By doing that, we will see paint losses that we just didn't see in normal light. 
we will see what we call deformations. And a deformation might be a big dent where somebody hit it accidentally. It could be a draw, which is a big ripple from the corner that shouldn't be there because the canvas is supposed to be taut, kind of like a drum, to keep it tension because paint, oil paint and acrylic paint, really needs to be kept flat. The more it flexes, the more cracks develop. And that's, so the stretcher or the strainer is like the foundation of a house, one of the most important things to, for the life of the painting. So once you've done all this, I guess the question is, and I, and I don't want to run out of time, so I just want you mm -hmm. to over, kind of give us an overview. Do you actually go in there with paint? What Do you we, actually go in there with? No, what, we have to use reversible materials one of the first and primary rules. Anything that I do in a treatment has to be able to be undone without hurting the original. So if it's an oil painting, I'm not going to in-paint in oils. Oils become more and more difficult to remove. I'm going to be using a synthetic resin and powdered pigment, something that I know I can remove in a very mild non-polar solvent. Now the reason why is that you might make well, a mistake, you might Well, I could make a mistake. It's respecting could, the integrity of the original work it could and also the artist. Uh, you know, you don't have want another to, damage. Right. An accident mm -hmm. that would have to be undone to be retreated. So just so because I've touched it, it doesn't mean it's the end. I can't stop. So an art restorer or an art conservator, a restorer actually, mm -hmm. who goes in and tries to fix some of the things you've described may require taking a paint, I mean, literally a brush mm -hmm. to the canvas, but you do so in a way that whatever you do can be undone. And it's supposed to be kept right to the damage. Uh, gross overpaint is when I can't match colors and I end up painting in a new background. <laughs> Has that, that happened? Absolutely, because there's no licensing in our field. You can call yourself a conservator or a restorer. Usually the difference is a conservator is takes continual education to keep abreast of new developments, participates in national organizations, whereas a restorer might be more from the artist background and actually literally be self-taught and read some chapters and think, I can do this. And most artists can do and hide some damage, but they don't know the ethics. It's not documented. There's no photography. And it's not necessarily reversible. So basically, again, again, how does one become a restorer, a conservator? Well, to these days, you really ideally should start in undergraduate school and be interested in art and interested in history. But you need not be a painter yourself. No, not at all. It's just like you can be a scuba diver and not even swim. <laughs> so sometimes, I mean, you need to have science, history, and art, those three things. And you might be really good in one, but not the other. So we work as a team often. We have conservation scientists that we rely on. And we have other people that are masters at in-painting. And in-painting is putting the icing back on the cake because something happened to it. Uh, and Susan's team at Westlake was really crucial for dealing with our collection because they have paper conservators. They have frame conservators who can deal with the actual frames themselves, which tend to be contemporary to the painting in our case. Mm -hmm. So they have painting conservators. They have a textile conservator. One of our one of our pieces is actually a Turkish carpet. It's a portrait woven out of fibers. Wow. And we needed a textile conservator to take a look at that. So very briefly, just give us the overview. Your goal was to preserve the upstate collection. I wanted to get 
a handle on, on the condition of the whole collection for a number of reasons. The first and foremost was so that I could prioritize which, which works needed attention first. And, and if I go after a preservation grant or a conservation grant or I ask for institutional funds to care for the collection, I want to know which of these 55 works I should deal with first. I also wanted to see if there are any any patterns happening in the, the different areas that we have the portraits displayed so that I could try and decide perhaps this location isn't great or we need to make some climate control changes here, things like that, because we're seeing across the board the similar damage. So you've mentioned a painting can last for, we know that we have paintings from you know the Renaissance and before, mm -hmm. you know, and frescoes from before that. Um, basically your job now, uh, Kara, is to make sure that this collection lives on exactly. and stands as a testimony to all the people who contributed to this institution. Exactly. What's the next plan in the very little bit of time we have left? What, sure. What's happening a to A number it? of things. So we have actually an online guide to the collection right now. You can go on the Historical Collections website and click through and see pictures of all the portraits. We'll have a link to that. Great. And then we also have hung the portraits back in new locations in an attempt to give some context to the individuals that are there, link them to the parts of the university that they maybe had the greatest impact. And we'll be providing some exhibit cards for each portrait where you can find out a biography of that individual, learn more about the artist, and basically experience that portrait a bit more. Wonderful. Thank you both for coming in. This is so interesting and unique for, for us to understand, and we ask, obviously that's a treasure trove in that 55 or 56 collection of portraits. Thanks, both of you, for coming in. My guests have been Susan Blakeney. She's an art conservator and restorer with Westlake Conservatives of Skinny Atlas, and Kara Howe, who's the curator of the uh, collections, historic collections at Upstate Medical University. I'm Linda Cohen. You're listening to Upstate's HealthLink On Air. And now, Deirdre Nealon, editor of Upstate Medical University's literary and visual arts journal, The Healing Muse, with this week's selection. Thank you, Linda. Physicians are often perceived as healers and compassionate advocates. Matthew J. Spering, whose most recent book is What Focus Is, offers us a somewhat comic take on this idea in his poem, The Doctor. If he told me to exercise... I would have understood. And if he'd explained the value of a long run or working out, I would have seen the sense in it. Because after all, he was the doctor who had finally gotten me to quit smoking, who had probably saved my life with that. But why he said it made no sense to him to spend two years of one's life exercising only to gain six months of life thus losing a year and a half one could have been doing something other than exercising, seemed so inherently wrong, though it was clear on looking at him he followed his own advice. A second take comes from Claudia M. Reeder, who teaches at California State University. She's currently working on a poetic memoir called The Body Narrative. Here is her poignant short poem, Meeting Dr. N., all summer, I wait to see a new neurologist. Across the wide desk, its neat piles of files, compassion fatigue lines his eyes. He leans toward me to say, I'm sorry, my wife has it too. Then stands, all doctor again. But the office lights had shifted to a soft white, 
as if we had met under a weeping cherry tree, blossoms surging, pink petals drifting around us. We had arranged to meet clandestinely at this spot for a bit of shade in sheer sunlight, a bit of sweet water. Thank you for joining us for HealthLink on Air, brought to you each week by Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York. Join us again next week when we explore meningitis and a new drug for shingles and some breakthrough retinal research. If you'd like to listen again to this week's show, you can find a podcast of it on iTunes. Just search for HealthLink on Air, that's all one word. And to keep up with all the goings-on at Upstate, you can find us on Facebook, you can follow us on Twitter, or you can check out the What's Up at Upstate blog. That's at upstate.edu slash what's up. I'm Linda Cohen. Thanks for listening.